Hello and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm joined by my friend, John Robert Downs. In this episode, John and I discuss his transition from the world of finance and cannabis investing into his current role as a health and wellness coach. We discuss how John's early career spent in the subprime mortgage lending market led to his introduction to Peter Schiff, an early financial commentator on the impending 2008 global financial crisis, and why people have a tendency to trust groupthink over fundamentals and personal truth. From there, we discuss fundamental flaws in the structure of capitalism and why this has led to corporatism. Next, we talk about decentralized autonomous organizations, or DAOs, and the history of the failed war on drugs, which could be more accurately considered a war on people and a war on consciousness. From there, we discuss the stigma associated with psychedelic in society today, the study of flow states, and the similarities in brain physiology associated with different modalities for experiencing holotropic states of consciousness. Next, we discuss John's move from the corporate sector into wellness coaching, his experience studying at the Flow Research Collective, and how the work of Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi helped him bridge the mystical elements of spiritual texts with a modern scientific understanding of psychology. We then discuss the importance of purpose in achieving flow states and the process of transforming the outward-facing image you present to the world. We end the discussion on the idea of masculine and feminine energies and why toxic masculinity remains so pervasive within our culture. Please enjoy. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks, Jordan, for having me. Absolutely. Really excited to have you on the podcast. And for the listener's benefit, John, someone that I originally got to know in a very corporate setting as we were both involved in the cannabis industry on the investment side of things. And over the last several years, as John and I have gotten to know each other, that relationship has developed into much more of a friendship as well. And seen a lot of commonalities between our two live stories. So I was really excited to have you join the podcast today, John. Yeah, thanks a lot. And I really appreciate the opportunity to join and tell my story. And uh, kudos to you, Jordan, for having a podcast, man. I think it's great. I've listened to a few episodes and you're doing good work. So keep it up. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's been a ton of fun. And just getting to know people in my life like you even better has just been such an exciting and fulfilling part of the process. So with that, why don't we kick things off with just a little bit of background on who you are and what are some of the key events that have brought you to where you are in your life today, and then we can take the conversation from there. Yeah, I was was born in a cave, raised by wolves, always knew I'd be spit. No, okay. All right. Well, uh, (laughs) you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I can go back all the way to the beginning, but really the big evolution or transformation in my life that's been top of mind and, and has been exciting and to talk about has been this, this transition from the world of business and finance, where I focused on placing money from investors into emerging markets. First, it was a lot of foreign stocks and securities at a little boutique broker dealer I, I worked for for a number of years. And then in the cannabis industry, helping investors create a profitable, sustainable industry from the ashes of prohibition, right? And then on the flip side, I was always working with entrepreneurs to raise that capital to get companies ready for 
the influx of investment and attracting that investment in the first place. And so at that intersection, it was just always a mandate to speak about business, finance, how are we going to grow this company? What's the total addressable market look like and on down, which I know you're very familiar with because that's how we met at uh, and through the industry. But over the last few years, in particular, the last five years, I guess, I started experimenting with plant medicines and opening my own mind in a way that I had not previously done. And that's become very interesting to a lot of my family and, and friends and then friends of friends as I began sharing with them my own journey of exploration of my consciousness more and more folks wanted to talk about what I was doing. You know, was it all ceremony work? Was it microdosing? What's the secret? You know, hey, I've seen you change over the last few years. What's really going on? And that's led to a, a really fun coaching business where I work with folks to help them feel better, perform better, really taking my own personal interest in personal development and self-help and starting to work with others in a way that uh, helps them along their journey. So that's been the story of my life, I guess, over the last five years is just that transition from a mandate to speak about investments and finance to the mandate to really speak to and guide individuals going down a path of expansion of consciousness to feel and perform better and potentiate their most authentic selves. And that's exciting. And it's a lot of fun and very rewarding. You're certainly in such a exciting, I don't even want to say industry, but just space. And, and, and then I think your timing is just perfect because as we've seen over the last several years, people continue to be more and more interested in psychedelics and wellness and, and all the benefits that that can bring. And we'll certainly love to hear about what that transformation has been like for you, because I, I think that I've also experienced elements of that in my life. Um, but maybe even before we get to that, going back to earlier in your life, I'm curious to know, what was it that initially attracted you to the world of finance and investment management? Was it entrepreneurship? Was it wealth? Was it a combination of factors? Yeah, it's, that's a great question. I graduated from UC Davis with a degree in history and political science, thinking that law school was the most likely landing spot for me. But then I really had no idea. I was thinking of, okay, the LSATs are on the horizon, but also maybe I want to be a graduate assistant and coach football. I, was, I played football at Davis. And so I had the opportunity to go the, the graduate assistant route, uh, assisting uh, a college football team. And I needed money. I was broke uh, when I, <laughs> you know, as most college seniors uh, can be. And I picked up the paper and this is 2004, saw a job for a loan officer went in and got a job at one of the largest subprime lenders in the country. And I had no concept really of economic cycles, of Keynesian versus Austrian economics. I just do nothing. All I knew was real estate was going up and it seemed like there was an opportunity for me to get into that industry. Well, within a few years, I owned my own mortgage company. So I guess I was entrepreneurial from the very beginning in the sense that I like to break down a process, see what was happening, see if I could improve upon it. And then ultimately, the guys at the top seemed to make more money. So I wanted to be at the top. So I just went from loan officer to manager to getting my own broker's license and going out and leasing an office and, and getting my own business. And so by 2007, things were really falling apart. Uh, the loan officers that worked for me were unable to close loans. The appraisals weren't coming back. Credit reports were terrible. 
And everybody on TV was just saying how great housing was going to be in 2008, except for one person, Peter Schiff, who was getting laughed at. There's actually YouTubes of him, of 10 minutes of him just being laughed at and laughed off of CNBC and MSNBC and all these talking head financial shows. Well, what he was saying resonated with me. I went out and I bought his book, Crash Proof, How to Survive the Coming Economic Collapse. And that was the first exposure I had to the broader world of finance and economics and it just blew my mind wide open. Um, significant expansion of consciousness there just in relation to how, oh, this is how the world works. So I finished the book in a weekend, went down to Newport Beach where he had an office and got the job. Just said, look, I'm, I'm going to work for you. I'm, I'm buying what you're selling. And uh, they sponsored me for my Series 7. Uh, I became a um, an investment advisor and just really through just con- a lot of hard work and then also being in the right place at the right time, I was able to grow my book of business to uh, well over 100 high net worth individuals, well over $130 million in assets under advisement. And we invested in gold, silver, foreign securities at a time right after the the collapse in the the markets that you know we were going out and just buying what we thought were good values in foreign markets and that went really well for a period of time but it was yeah it was really just a little bit of luck a little bit of happenstance but then also a desire for me at that time to just figure out what was going on it's always been a natural intellectual curiosity that i have and you know when i'm looking at my business and my business looks broken but everyone else is saying no no you're 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 fine you should be doing great and something doesn't connect. It just didn't seem to, to fit. I started going out and looking for answers. And I just happened to be fortunate enough to stumble across Peter Schiff pitching his, uh, his perspective. And, and it resonated with me. That story is so interesting to me because it, it resonates very strongly with what I've experienced first in the world of finance. And then as I've become more interested in spirituality and physics, that I think is a consistent theme that you see through all areas of conventional science or conventional thought where people get so locked into this group think and it becomes effectively a part of their ego that when you have someone like Peter Schiff saying, guys, look at, look at the fundamental metrics. Like this doesn't make sense. We're headed for a crisis yet. People don't want to hear it. And I, I think it resounds very highly with what Ray Dalio is saying today. And with regards to where we are in the debt cycle, where we are with regards to the changing world order yet for whatever reason people i can sometimes be too too inclined to believe what the group of conventional people at the top are saying than to listen to what really resonates as true to themselves and there's a concerted effort to direct that truth and i use truth in quotations to benefit those in positions of power and it doesn't have to be a yeah deep conspiracy. It doesn't have to be anything nefarious or coordinated per se. It just is a natural inclination that hierarchical power structures are going to entrench themselves and try to direct conversation and overall energy in such a way that they're going to maintain that entrenched power. And so you see that in the financial system. You saw it in 2007 and 2008. Nobody, quote unquote, saw the housing crisis coming to hear them say it now. But in fact, there were many people, Noriel Rubini, Peter Schiff, Taleb, uh, and obviously, you know, the big short, Michael Lewis made famous a whole host of folks that were betting against housing. And in retrospect, those, those bets, that bet against housing just looks like, oh, how can anyone have missed this? But you'd be tough 
pressed to find the story today uh, or an accurate accounting of that time, it's more likely that you're, you know, the story they'll tell you today is just like, wow, you know, a few guys got it right, but nobody saw it coming. You know, there was plenty of warning, but those people were quite literally laughed off of the television because it went against the, the portfolios of the entrenched interests. Do you think that that structure is an inherent weakness of capitalism as a structure? Great question. Love that question. I love this tangent. So <laughs> yes, it is, but it's it's not the structure in my view. It is the magnitude of the structure in that when businesses get too far away from accountability of the, of the people, then they are able to manipulate the systems of power, the governments in order to really just become rent seekers to operate in a way that is for their interests as opposed to the public good. I think about it in terms of, think of a, a town, you know, if the bread, the bread baker is baking bread that's stale or moldy and no one wants to eat it, then they're going to simply like find another bed breaker. I mean, they're, they're, like they're bread baker, excuse me. And the people are right there. I mean, they can they walk into the shop and they can talk to the owner. And there's just like this level of feedback that you don't get in a multinational economic system where corporations are so powerful, so insulated from the public will that when you have, say, for example, with Pfizer, you know, these $200 billion settlements, these huge betrayals of the public trust, it's just they're, because of the law of exponential numbers, I mean, the magnitude is so large, they can pay the fine and they can continue to operate with relative impunity and, and no accountability directly to the people. And so that feature of capitalism in that what we've allowed these businesses to get so large, I think is it doesn't serve the people. And so, you know, I think there has to be a greater accountability. Maybe that's for another conversation like how we get there, but I think it has to be getting away with too big to fail. First of all, you know, and this idea that these huge companies are so powerful, so wealthy that they are above reproach. Yeah, that's not capitalism. That's corporatism. That's not capitalism. And I think that, you know, many of capitalism's defenders are actually the, they're terrible for capitalism because, you know, they advocate for a system of capitalism that really isn't capitalist as much as it is corporatist. And, you know, turns out to be an oligarchy, which doesn't serve the people. And then you think about even just the concept of shareholders profit, like, and the argument that the corporatists or the capitalists would say is that, well, if you're maximizing shareholders profit, then you're providing the most incremental value to your customers. But another way of looking at it is just, frankly, you're maximizing the difference between what your vendors get paid and what your customers end up having to pay. So in, in a lot of ways, you're actually inherently creating, or it's, it's almost like a, a form of value reduction. But on a brighter note, that's part of what gets me excited about a lot of the work that's being done in DeFi and crypto, because I think that there's just so many other ways that we can think to create economic structures that are beneficial for both the owners of the project or the token or whatever it is, and the consumers of that product. Yeah, decentralized autonomous organizations, DAOs, you know, one example of that, super excited about decentralization of finance for the same reasons that you are, no doubt. 
And, you know, I don't buy the argument from people that say, well, you're maximizing shareholder value. That's all you need to do. Well, I think that a corporation has a responsibility to its shareholders, yes, also to its employees, as well as to its customers. And so we have to reconcile all three of those in order to take a true accounting of the value that a corporation provides. It can't just be looking at the value to the shareholders at the exclusion of the customers and employees. And we've seen in the fossil fuel industry, like if you're ignoring negative externalities, like your impact on the climate, you're clearly not, and again, just focusing on shareholder profit, you're clearly not getting an accurate perspective on you know what your business is actually doing. Yeah, that's exactly right. And for too often, you know, we see, and that's one of the reasons why I think I mean, switching gears, you know, it's like we we want to have this debate and don't want speech to be stifled. And I think it's important that all of the data available is brought to this discussion about what is the value, true value that corporations provide. I do believe that voluntary action and, and private property, I mean, these are good foundations for a free society, a better system than any that we've ever invented previously. But you know, like any other system or tool, it can be abused mm-hmm. and corrupted. And from my perspective, I think you know we're seeing that in the world at large right now. And I think that's one reason why a lot of other people are, are seeing it and feeling it as well, even if they can't put their fingers on it logically and point to it and say, yeah, this is what's happening. They just feel a disconnect from the way society is operating today. And so you see the issues with mental health. I believe that we're certainly in a pandemic, but it's a pandemic of declining mental health as a result of coercion and limitations on free speech and free movement and the ability to function as mm-hmm. as an autonomous beings. And you know, we and a see continuous message of fear. And a continuous message of fear, right? Which you know, is not in any way serving society in a positive way. And we see people talking about this. I mean, we know this, you know, we know that it's in the in the public consciousness, but to what extent is a true free conversation happening or is it being manipulated, controlled, coerced by big tech, big government, and those that wish to use this the mechanisms of controlling the conversation to their benefit. You mentioned earlier the concept of DAOs. Could you talk a little bit more about what those are? Because I think that's a a super exciting new concept that probably a lot of listeners aren't yet familiar with. Yeah, it's a decentralized autonomous organization, a DAO. It's essentially like an LLC or limited liability company where the members of the DAO receive some input into how the DAO is run. So just like members would have input into how the LLC is run. Uh, What makes it really Interesting is rather than having a centralized, you know, log of who the members are down at corporate headquarters, you have it on the blockchain. So it's decentralized and completely accessible and auditable at all times. And so that transparency is a, a significant feature. And with that transparency with the blockchain, we're able to, in essence, give more people input than what would be possible through conventional centralized means, trying to run a proxy vote or you know have the shareholders of a company steer that company in the centralized world is much more difficult than in the decentralized world. So DAOs can have 
agreements on how they're managed, if there's a committee that answers to the to the holders of of shares or tokens of the DAO. But um, you know, so there's many features that are similar to businesses, but the primary feature that's different from the world we see today is just essentially the decentralized ledger, essentially the decentralized ledger and ability for many people to have a word and a seat at the table. Do you think that that type of structure could be used as a form of government as well? Absolutely. I mean, what is a government but a large corporation with many of the same, you know, many of the same attributes, you know, different rules, certainly above many rules, but, um, you know, monopoly on force and, and other things of that nature that have been derived from the people. But yes, I think it could be, in theory, certainly a way that we govern in the future. That's interesting. Uh, monopoly on force. I never thought about it that way, but that's that's really interesting perspective. But uh, before I got us way off track on, on your life story, would love to take it back and, and hear where things went from you working to Peter Schiff to initially getting interested and involved in the cannabis industry. Yeah, I've, I've said this story before, but it really goes back to when I was 21 years old. I smoked cannabis for the first time and having grown up in Springfield, Missouri, and, you know, I was a child of the eighties and Nancy Reagan was a pretty, you know, she did her job. I dared to stay off of any drugs and, (laughs) you know, was, was just really a a pretty good goody two shoes kid. And it was quite a step for me to to try cannabis for the first time, but I was curious and uh, I laughed and you know, my first thought was, this is great. They've lied to me. This is not what they told me it was. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, and my second thought was like, what else are they lying about? And if they're lying about cannabis, what, what the hell else is really going on? So it really caused me to open up my eyes and expanded my, my worldview uh, in many respects. But, you know, I was a f- high functioning stoner for, I guess, for lack of a better a term for a number of years. And, not a huge drinker and would rather take a little puff on a joint at the end of a long day than to drink a beer, or have a glass of wine. And I just felt like that was fine. And I should have the same, or everyone should have the same freedom to choose between cannabis or alcohol that I did. And I maybe took for granted because of the color of my skin and my socioeconomic status. So I always had a problem with cannabis prohibition. And when Washington and Oregon started to legalize, I, I was paying attention. And with my background in alternative asset investment, wealth management, and that, um, I guess, really my, my fervor to, to be involved in something that would change the world for the better, uh, I jumped in with both feet to the cannabis industry. It was really shocking for me, too, because I, then I had to learn the startup world in a way that I hadn't. I was always used to looking at pitch decks that these companies had been private for a few years and we were going to go from private to public and a lot of pipe transactions for recently public companies. But the thing they all had in common was here's our numbers. This is our projections. And you know you can value the business. I jumped into the cannabis industry in 2015 and immediately it was like, oh, none of these companies have any revenues. I mean, we're, we're basically looking at pro formas that are just pie in the sky. And how do you value this business? And that was my crash course in early stage venture capital and private equity investing for companies that you know would have oftentimes nothing more than a really 
compelling CEO, in some instances, not so compelling, and you know, a compelling business model in the right place at what we thought was the right time, but we didn't have any proof or justification that they were the right team and that this was the right business. If you think back to 2015, 2016, I mean, this is before you really had um, any legal market in California. I mean, you had the precursor to the fully legal market, which is a collective system. So you had a lot of cannabis collectives that had been formed. It was a very interesting time where you would have on one corner, a dispensary doing $10 million a year in revenue. And then, you know, a couple counties over somebody that ran a dispensary doing far less in revenue would get tossed in jail and have the book thrown at them. And so there was this real disconnect and disparity between enforcement and a lot of uncertainty that added to the difficulty in valuing businesses. But I found it very exciting. And in uh, and as I know you do too, you know, for a lot of the mm-hmm. same reasons, it's just super fun and fast moving and, you know, really amazing people that all wanted to be here for the right reasons. Nobody woke up in the morning and, and just stumbled into the cannabis industry. You really had a group of folks, at least back in that time in 15, 16, 17, that's like, they wanted to be there to see the industry go legal and, you know, had a lot of idealistic in retrospect hopes on what the industry would look like. Now, over the last few years, I think it's been pretty clear that there have been corporate interests that have come in and Mm -hmm. been very successful at raising capital and then putting that capital to work very effectively from the perspective of their shareholders. And so we've seen, you know, some consolidation around the multi-state operators, around vertically integrated facilities, you know, as laws that have maybe restricted interstate commerce for investment, for example, like in Colorado, where it was, you had to be a Colorado resident in order to invest. And then, you know, some of those have fallen away. And so what we're starting to see is a big business and, and cannabis looks like many other industries, um, with the exception of the fact very notably that they are federally illegal still. That said, the industries, it's just been amazing to be a part of seeing the industry change so rapidly over the last six, seven years. And that's certainly been my experience too, coming in that obviously, you know, and I, I'll be fully transparent that the majority of the attraction to me for the industry initially was the economic opportunity and the idea to come into a sector that was clearly missing a lot of institutional financing and support these growth, the growth of these startups and I've become a more frequent cannabis consumer since I lived in Colorado, but before that I was never a huge smoker. So, you know, like I said, it was more opportunistic. I think for me, I, I started in the industry in 2018, but then just being a part of the industry and learning the history of the war on drugs. I also come from a white family, middle class. So the concern of getting thrown in jail, if I ever wanted to consume cannabis was just never something that was front and center for me. And then as I've gotten more into the industry and seen the statistics around how the war on drugs has been used as a effectively a political tool and a way to continue to institutionalize systemic racism. It's really helped me to stay excited and motivated about building this industry and, and really helping to continue to correct, to right the wrongs and the lies that were told to us by the likes of the just say no and war on drugs movement. How do you feel about the fact that we've seen guys like Nixon's deputy director, I think John Erlinger, if I'm getting his name right, came out a few years ago and said, hey, we did this just to, you know, we banned drugs because we wanted to get at the anti-war movement, because we wanted to get at the civil rights movement. I mean, this was a coordinated strategy to enforce this racist 
war on substances because it was really a war on people that whose opinions we didn't like about wars that we were fighting and who we didn't like because of the color of their skin and the, and the rights that they were trying to advocate for. So, you know, this having come out and we all know this now, the fact that we are still years later sitting here with a federally illegal industry and still seeing these huge disparities between white and black in enforcement. And it's infuriating for me. And I think it's infuriating for a lot of people to see the system so broken that we're still going out and fighting this broken war. Totally. I, th- I think it's devastating. And it gets back to what we were talking about earlier in the conversation with regards to trust and power structures and the fact that once you recognize that the government was lying about cannabis and then you extend that to what's been going on in psychedelics and I think dating far before the controlled substances agreement, the more I've learned about the histories of organized religions and how important psychedelics were to effectively all of them, yet that knowledge, a lot of which has been suppressed. And it just, it can be disheartening because it makes you distrust everything that's been told you by figures of authority. Exactly. And it goes back to my second thought when I first consumed cannabis, which was what else are they lying to me about? And it's been clear that psychedelics, we've been lied to about their potential. And I had many months of wrapping my head around my fear and really coming to grips with my fear that I would eat a magic mushroom and lose my mind or any other experimentation with psychedelics uh, or these plant medicines was just so wrapped in fear and stigma that the work was, I mean, there was more work to get past that fear than there was in approaching them with the mindfulness of, hey, these are compounds that can be useful for me. In fact, their highest and best use is for personal and spiritual development. And just getting past the propaganda to having that conversation with folks, it's challenging. You know, it's challenging for those that aren't ready to hear, which is why I generally don't have that conversation. I talk, I just talk to people that have already they've come to this conclusion themselves because they are seekers and you can't lead someone. Uh, I mean, you can, you can lead someone to water, you know, horse to water. You can't make it drink, you know, same, same way. You, you can kind of show the science and show the, the studies. You can talk about the, the first Renaissance in psychedelic science, which was back in the fifties and sixties prior to the banning of these material of these compounds. These, and you can see that there was a ton of positive benefit that was the result of study. And all that went away and was covered up for decades. And I'm glad that we're now discovering it because I, I believe that you know these are very powerful substances. Obviously, that they are very powerful, but they, they have a lot of societal benefit. And we're seeing that in headlines that seem to come out almost every day where psychedelics are useful for depression or PTSD, anxiety, and a whole host of other afflictions, addiction that I believe we're just getting started and scratching the surface of their potential, not to mention the fact that there are many people out there who are the healthy normals that can use these substances to optimize their life, to improve their life in some way. And I think the point you bring up about the stigma is so important. And 
for me, the, the stigma, there's the, the fear side of it, which I think I've thankfully come to grips mostly with that piece of it. But then there's also, I think another almost just as important element of the stigma that I still struggle with is, and that is that society has ingrained even the call it psychedelic open-minded folks that, okay, sure. Maybe they're not going to make you go crazy and lose your mind. Like the war on drugs people were saying, but even still, if you think you have this spiritual life-changing experience, you know, that's great and all, but you were just on drugs at the end of the day. Right. And so you almost like you minimize the experience because you think, oh, it's just because I was on this wacky drug. When in reality, it's like, I actually fully believe that that is an experience with a holotropic state of consciousness with it in many ways, a truer version of reality. But yet I still struggle internally to accept that. You're not the only one. But when I study flow science, I, mean, I studied flow, which is you know a state of consciousness in itself where you feel and perform your best and flow is characterized by many of the same features that characterize the psychedelic state of consciousness. Time either stands still or speeds up. You lose track of any self-consciousness or self-referential processing and awareness. You just become completely absorbed in the task or the moment at hand. You're, you're in the eternal now. So when I was at the Flow Research Collective, what we studied was the actions that we undertake in any given day or at any given moment, we're going to release chemicals, dopamine, oxytocin, norepinephrine, or cortisol. And the chemicals that are being released are similar to the chemicals that are going to be released with the aid of psychedelics and how they interact with your brain, serotonin primarily. And so what you're looking at is when you're accessing a quote unquote psychedelic state, you're releasing these chemicals that are already intrinsic to ourselves. And so we can release some of those chemicals through breath work, holotropic breath work, or, you know, in smaller amounts, just by doing things that we find pleasurable. And this is why I, on the tattoo that I got just you know a few months ago, I have the chemical compounds for oxytocin and dopamine and psilocybin and LSD and THC all tattooed at different places on my sleeve because awesome. it's, a, it's a nod to the impact of chemistry in shaping our reality. And so with flow, it is better you know, to be able to access a flow state without the aid of a psychedelic compound. You don't want to be in a situation that requires you to just drop into a flow state, potentially like a dangerous situation. And I have to be like, well, let me stop and take my microdose of psilocybin or LSD or whatever, you know, like it's just like you wouldn't want to stop and have to like run through breath work. Although you can use breath work techniques in that moment to calm yourself and to release these chemicals and to put yourself into an altered state. Again, everything that we're doing is changing our chemistry internally. And that chemistry then affects our perception, our reality, as you said a few minutes ago. So, so we, we strive to understand how to manipulate our biology and our neurochemistry so that we can access flow states without any external pill or compound or anything. But for many people, it can be quite healthy to gain access to a flow state with the help of a psychedelic compound so that you see the way. Um, and you feel what it is to be there. So now you have in your mind a goal state and a goal feeling that you're that you're striving for. And so this is why 
I've heard it said, you do drugs for 10 years, you do psychedelics for 10 years, so that eventually you feel like you're on psychedelics without having to do them. And when I used to hear that before I had any experience with psychedelics, I'd think, wait, you mean I want to be tripping when I'm not even doing the drugs? Like, okay, <laughs> so my point is to turn myself into a hippie. Like that doesn't make any sense. But now what I realize is having, you know, worked with the psychedelics much more is okay, well, the feelings that you're trying to access without the drugs that you want to have access to, those are feelings like love awareness, mindfulness of the present moment and, you know, letting thoughts of the past, worries of the future fall away from our awareness. And that's something that you gain in the psychedelic state that can be quite liberating in so many ways Mm -hmm. that when you come back from a journey you say, Hey, I want that. That's the feeling that I want to get without the drugs. And then that's when you start to look for the tools, the practices that will deliver that, like breathwork, mindfulness, meditation, yoga, a walk in nature, all of those things. And that's what I work with. I mean, that's how I work with folks when they become clients for microdosing or whenever we facilitate ceremonies. It's always about the integration once you come back. It's always about being able to access those same states, those same feelings without the use of the medicine because yeah, mm-hmm. the medicine is going to be there and you can use it. Great. But can you access it without the medicine? Because that's where your true power comes from. And yeah, that's the goal. Wow, that's, that's awesome. And I think that's a great segue to connect the rest of your career progression from working in cannabis on the private sector side to getting more interested in psychedelics from a personal perspective and, you know, moving into more, more of a coaching role. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, I, I got to say my disclaimer, right? I'm not advocating for anyone to do anything illegal. There are a couple of places in the country um, where psychedelics are legal or certainly decriminalized. And you know, there's places outside of most of the United States where these compounds, plant medicines and such can be used mindfully in a personal and, and spiritual context um, legally. So I'm not advocating for anyone to do anything illegal. And uh, I've certainly never done that. So that said, yeah, it's, um, there's a lot of interest in how to work with these compounds mindfully in a way that one can accelerate the benefits. And there are definite drawbacks to working with these compounds from a perspective of not being educated. You think about contraindications with SSRIs or other antidepressants. We think about, you know, just the importance of the old adage, set and setting, just, you know, where you're at and then what mindset are you bringing to the experience? We think about protocols and, and, you know, when to take what substance and how do I know if it's working? What am I supposed to feel if this is a good thing? And what does it feel like if it's a bad thing? And all the questions, people are looking for answers. And so it became really natural for me as I began to do my own exploration with these compounds. I was just, you know, I'm a pretty open guy and around my own family and friends and friends of friends, I, you know, was, was talking about my experiences. And in some instances, I wasn't overtly talking about it. Like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm microdosing and this is making all the difference, but rather folks would just see a change in my demeanor and in what was it, what my interests were and how I would feel 
to them. And so I started answering questions quite honestly. This is what I'm doing. This is, you know, and um, you know, this I sit in ceremonies here, or I'm, you know, microdosing with that. And and it just blossomed into an opportunity to do that full time and to bring my knowledge as well as my ability to do research. I mean, I did tons of research on a lot of industries, uh, a lot of companies. And so taking all those same skill sets and then taking the, uh, you know, the skill set of communicating effectively and sitting and listening effectively and all that, that I was doing in a very professional context, it started to seem real that I could do it in a context of helping folks access higher states of consciousness, ease their suffering, enhance their mindfulness, and improve their lives. That's what it's all about. We all want to improve our lives in some way, shape, or form. And so that's what I'm doing now. Call it coaching uh, or mentoring, but uh, it's guiding, you know, as I've heard it called, or facilitation. I'm, I'm certainly not a shaman. I'm not anyone's shaman, but having been in this space working with these medicines, I, I feel I have a perspective. And that perspective, I could summarize it in saying that they won't work unless you do the work. And so it's really the important consideration when working with psychedelics, whether you're sitting in a ceremony or whether you're microdosing is what are the practices that I am going to do day in and day out consistently to help guide the expansion that could be quite possible uh, in my consciousness when I'm working with these compounds. And so some mindfulness and breathing exercises, breath work, cold, ther- cold plunge therapy, journaling consistently, walking in nature, dancing, somatic practices can be extraordinarily beneficial. And in my own work, I've started to bring to bear 15, 16 years as a yogi, you know, the yogic philosophy, there's stoic philosophy. I'm an avid reader of stoic texts. There's understanding of the the latest breakthroughs, excuse me, of flow and consciousness. So that's really exciting when we understand the neuroscience and we start to understand the mechanisms of how these compounds, as well as how our actions affect the, the chemicals in our brain. All of this I bring to bear to really give a very holistic perspective for my clients. Carl Jung has been a huge influence when we think about depth psychology and this idea of the collective unconscious that we all hold some wisdom, innate wisdom from our forebears and our ancestors within us that we access through symbols and stories. And, you know, we all have a shadow. I have in that same sleeve that I mentioned earlier, um, I have a tree and you know, the trees was inspired by Young's quote that a tree cannot have its branches ascend into heaven unless its roots also descend into hell, which is a nod towards that fact that we all have a shadow. We all have a part of our psyche that we don't want to look at. And looking at that can be quite liberating from a personal and spiritual perspective. And so there are exercises that take clients through where they're able to face their shadow and really reconcile it and become more whole as a part of that. I mean, the word integration, which is such a buzzword in psychedelics uh, right now is, you know, it means to become whole. And so we have to learn to integrate 
all of ourselves, even those parts of ourselves that we might have previously considered ugly or unlovable, loving them is the key to, you know, in many instances, fulfillment and wholeness. First off, I mean, I thought that was an awesome response and a lot of follow-ups that come to mind. One of them was that you talked about the concept of flow and this flow state. And you mentioned earlier the Flow Research Collective. Could you explain more about what that is? Because I'm not familiar with that group. Yeah, the Flow Research Collective was founded by Stephen Kotler, an author, and uh, Rian Doris, an entrepreneur friend of mine that really became fascinated with this idea that they could track and improve human performance and optimization through the study of this state of consciousness that was coined by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi as flow back in the mid nineties. And, and, and I said John, before, sorry to interrupt, but I was just going to say a funny anecdote. I think that is actually how you and I first connected on some of this stuff because I had just read that book and, and you were talking about how you know important this concept had been to you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. God, you're taking me back. It is. It's, it's super cool because as I was deepening my own studies I sometimes get turned off by the woo-woo aspect of many of the spiritual texts that are pointing to, hey, here's how you get to a higher state of consciousness. And so it was reading into some of the work of Sam Harris in his book, Waking Up, that really turned me into a meditator because uh, it just, it was so well-documented from a scientific perspective why I should be meditating that I just couldn't look away as I knew that I had to take this, this habit up. And along those same lines, you know, I look at other texts and spiritual texts and okay, it's kind of woo woo out there. And then something like Mihai's book flow brings it home and says, well, these mystical events are actually not quite mystical at all. They're dictated by science, by what you're doing, how you're doing it. And you start to understand the the neurochemical impact of our actions. And it just, it brought it home and it made it real and it made it scientific and empirical for me. And so I started, when I began to really look at this path of stepping away from finance and stepping into coaching and guiding flow jumped out as something I wanted to learn more about. And so then I learned about the Flow Research Collective and I jumped into their program, Zero to Dangerous, and also their Flow Trainers Accelerator, which teaches folks that have gone through their program how to train others in accessing flow states. And so what were some of the tactics or information that you learned from that program that stands out as particularly interesting or helpful? Yeah, so you could talk for days about the 20% that is exciting and interesting and probably gets more headlines, but then it's the 80% that makes the biggest impact are things like getting a good night's rest and eating properly. These simple things matter so much because you have to be in a positive physiological state to access higher states of consciousness. You can't be in pain and agony and reliably access higher states of consciousness. And so a good night's rest is number one. Number two, these little handheld computers that we carry around with us that also double as phones, 
are so detrimental to flow states. They are distraction machines and we are as a whole addicted to them. And so if you want to get into flow states, you have to put into your calendar periods of time, preferably 90 to 120 minutes where you put the phone in a drawer, you turn it off, you leave it in the car and you concentrate without interruption. Each time we get interrupted, and it doesn't have to be your phone, it could be somebody knocking on your office door, but every time you're interrupted, it takes about 15 minutes to get back into the same level of concentration as you were in your pre-interruption state. And so what we find is that many knowledge workers in their day-to-day are living essentially just going from one interruption to the next. They're never getting any ability to get into a deep work state. And it's not always that they're getting interrupted from someone outside of them. It's that they have trained themselves to be so dependent upon the dopamine release of checking their messages, emails, or Instagram that they're just constantly and oftentimes subconsciously interrupting themselves. And so they're never getting into a deep level of work that is conducive to flow. So that's number one is you've got to block out time in which you will not be interrupted. That's so important. And if you're doing that, you're getting a good night's rest, you're drinking lots of water, you're exercising, you're ahead of 99.9% of people in the world today. And then I think the second thing, well, another thing I should say rather that is super important is your breath. And in all spiritual traditions, it's clear the importance of breath, of finding your center, of bringing yourself back to the present moment. And the breath is the most effective way to do that. And understanding the impact of your breath, bringing mindfulness to your breathing and leveraging breathing exercises at times when you get out of sorts or upset, frustrated, being able to take a moment and pause for an intentional breath or to run a few minutes of box breathing with say seven second inhales, holding for seven seconds, seven seconds, exhale, hold at the bottom for seven seconds, and then seven second inhale again, being able to run through that for a few minutes can do so much to lower your heart rate variability, increase your overall health, put yourself in a a better, more elevated state. And so I would say that having a clear understanding of the importance of breath and having a toolkit of breathwork exercises that you can access in times when you are off center, super important. Because when you, you know, those, that's one instance where the benefits compound. So, okay, you know, you're feeling a little out of sorts, you're agitated, you do a little bit of breath work for just a few moments under your breath. No one even has to know that you're doing it. And then when it's time for you to respond in that conversation that you're having, instead of reacting and perhaps saying something that you regret, you react from a more resourced, intelligent place. And then the fault, so the effects of that response, as opposed to a negative reaction, they compound, you know, you have better choices and it just, and and it just keeps going on and on. Yeah. And that's something that I've found to be so true in my own life is if I'm able to stop myself when I'm getting worked up and angry and defensive about stuff, if I'm able to 
take a breath and take a second. Like my response is completely different. Now, unfortunately that rarely ever happens, but I'm working on it. And it's just pretty phenomenal to see how just that simple act of stopping and taking a breath can make such a huge difference. Oh, it's, it's remarkable. It really is. And I am a long time, you know, four or five days a week, I will do yoga. And so I am a consistent Ujjayi breath breather, I should say, you know, where I'm, I'm mindful of my breathing, breathing through my nose, you know, with the ocean sound in my throat, it's a constant, but in the context of being in a yoga studio, it's just natural. Okay. I'm going to go in and I'm going to do my Ujjayi breathing, bringing that out, that awareness out into my day-to-day life and really starting to allow that mindfulness and that breath to just permeate all elements of my life has been when I, I've noticed I'm more well-resourced and I can make better decisions, respond more appropriately as I would as my higher self. And I've seen the improvements in my life. So it's really important to be aware of the context of your breathing. And it's not just look at breath work as, hey, I'm going to a breath work class or I'm going to yoga. And there I'm going to practice my breathing and then I'm going to go back and continue doing what I was doing before with no mindfulness paid to my breath. And so that's been a huge impact. I'm reading James Nestor's book, Breath, right now. Mm. And as a result, I've taped my mouth shut for the last couple of nights as I've been sleeping in order to facilitate nasal breathing as opposed to mouth breathing when I sleep. And my sleep score two nights ago was 100. Last night, it was 92. And this is a marked improvement over my previous week uh, of sleep scores. And it's just really brought even more awareness to the importance of being mindful of our breath. And we can all train ourselves to breathe less through our mouth and more through our nose. And there's a whole host of not only mental benefits, but also very real physical benefits to breathing through our nasal cavities you know, for cleansing the air, for disease, for there's just, I mean, there's a book written on the subject and I encourage anyone to pick it up. It's breath by James Nestor, but really cannot overstate the importance of mindfulness on breath and cannot overstate the importance of becoming aware of distractions in your life and moving to eliminate them. That is the first step to being in flow is eliminating the distractions. And what you were just saying there made me think of one of my favorite Viktor Frankl quotes, which is between stimulus and response, there is a space. And that space is our power to choose our response. And our response lies our growth and our freedom. I love that. I love it. I love it. Said that many a times. That is Viktor Frankl is the man. And Man's Search for Meaning is must read for anybody that is looking for a deeper sense of purpose and meaning in their lives. And that's another, you know, element of flow that's super important to touch on is purpose. If you are not engaged in an activity that you find purposeful, that sparks your curiosity, that rouses your passion, you are running uphill into the wind. And so when we look at high impact performers and those that are spending more time in flow than the average person, they know what their purpose is. And their purpose is at that intersection of their curiosity and their and their passion. So it's like they, they have the wind at their sails because 
they can be engaged and they're curious and they're passionate. And so, you know, as they fulfill that purpose, as opposed to, you know, having to drag their asses out of bed in the morning to do whatever it is that they need to do. So when I start to work with someone right out of the gate, regardless of what they bring to me as the reason for, you know, why we're working together, it's one of the first questions is, do you know your purpose? What's your massively transformative purpose, as we call it in the Flow Research Collective? You know, that big audacious goal that drives all your other goals, because now you gain clarity as well on how to spend your time. If you can stack your goals so that all your goals add up to that massively transformative purpose. And if one of your goals doesn't, then why is it in your goal stack? Probably shouldn't be. And so that that work right there of just really taking a step back and saying, hey, what am I doing here? <laughs> you know, it's, it's remarkable to me how how little that question is asked by many people. Yeah. And where, and I would guess it's probably a, a spectrum, but like where do people who are looking to coaching from you, like where, where are they typically coming from at a point in their life? Yeah. So there, it is a spectrum, but a lot of, um, a lot of CEOs and entrepreneurs of early stage and startup companies, probably because that's a lot of who my network was right from the cannabis industry. Uh, sure. <laughs> so, you know, those are, those are friends and friends of friends. So I'd say there's a lot of folks just like me, a lot of men like me that were looking for purpose, but they're not finding it in money. They're not finding it in women. They're not finding it in any affirmation from the outside world. There's something missing inside. And so the first bit of uneasiness is, you know, that comes to many men. It's like, well, I'm winning the game. Why am I so unhappy? You know, and you know, I've got a, I've got money in the bank account. I've got a pretty girlfriend that I like, or a wife. I've got a job that I find interesting. Why am I so miserable? And that's a question that can work to, to find an answer to, and then start to incorporate changes in one's life that can lead to more happiness and fulfillment. But you know, I, I work with a lot of women too. And I work with, I've got women in their sixties down to girls in their early twenties that I work with. And so, but the, it's always the universal element is always happiness. I'm not finding it outside of me. And how can I find it inside of me? Especially when there's so much about myself that I mean, they're not sure about, or I don't like. And so then it becomes a, a, an exercise in learning to love yourself. And I say, you know, it's an exercise. It's a process. It's not an event. And I've seen people have that revelation of, oh, fuck, yeah, I, I love myself in a ceremonial space where, you know, they might have just sat with a few grams of mushrooms. And it's like, oh, I, I realize I am. I am one. I'm the universe in a drop. This is amazing. Life will never be the same again. But if they don't go back and integrate that experience with practices, self-love practices, positive affirmations and meditations by being around community and really finding others like them that share their same experiences, then that can be lost. But it always seems to come back to love. And first and foremost, you know, to really develop self-love do you think that's a universally human phenomenon to have these 
deep-seated insecurities or, or feelings of unlove for yourself? Well, it, it, it does seem to be deeply human. I, I don't think there's an antelope or a lion on the savanna that's unhappy with itself, right? It's just, they just are, they're just present. And so our ability to think of ourselves self-referentially, it seems to be prone then to the drawbacks of comparison, right? And looking at others and thinking of what we have or don't have. And, you know, then we're living in a world that is really set up by society rather that is set up to make us feel inadequate so that we can buy what will make us feel better. And all of the traditional structures of the traditional structures of finding self-worth, we think about family or church or community, these places where these are the places where we're seeing more fractures than ever. And, you know, we're more separated. We, we don't see our families as much. We don't see, we're not as, as much involved in the community. I mean, many of us think about this, you know, we're living on a street. We don't even know who our neighbors are. And so we're, we're at a time, you know, to disconnect. And I mean, in human history, I think that is unlike any other, as we go from an analog to a digital world. And I do think there's a lot of hope. And I think that, you know, psychedelics will play a role. I'm very hopeful that they'll play a positive role in helping to address that chronic unease or dis-ease that we as humans seem to be so good at um, at feeling, as I think partially in res- as a result of the way our society is structured with the incentives that are in place. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think I have a lot of hope too. And- for folks who are interested in working with you for coaching, what would be the best way to get in touch with you or like, what's your website? What's, and I'll make sure to include all this in the uh, show notes as well. Yeah. So the website is johnrobertdowns.com. Just my name spelled it out. Pretty much how to find me anywhere on the web. And uh, anyone can go there and schedule a 30 minute introductory call, see if it's a fit for us to collaborate. So I'd be happy to to speak to any of your listeners that are interested in speaking with me. I appreciate the um, the interest and it's at johnrobertdowns.com. And I remember when we were last catching up, you were talking about, you had actually just launched the website and you're talking about how you're presenting yourself on your website versus how you had historically presented yourself in the more corporate world. And would just love if you could tell, talk to the listeners about what that process has been like for you and, and you know, thinking through how, how you've transformed your for lack of a better word, just image over the last several years? Well, that's a fun question. Yeah, it's scary to expose oneself to feedback or criticism. And as a lot of the work that I've done, you know, in my in my own work over the last five, six years is really starting to understand where this image of John Downs wearing the nice suit, walking around, having to be in control at all times came from. You know, I can obviously came from early childhood. And I think there's, for me at least, an understanding of greater humility or a felt sense rather of greater humility in how little I know, how curious I am to know, but that even as I 
I'm a seeker myself, I can still add value and be helpful to others by helping guide them along on the path of personal discovery and you know on their spiritual awakenings. And so it's been fun to just try to let go of the need to always be on top of it. And uh, sometimes that takes the form of just the copy on my website. Other times it's, you know, the writing that I do online, just coming to grips and being open about uncertainty and for lack of a better word, being vulnerable. And one of my coaches told me, you know, vulnerability is the most important precursor for growth. And it's also the most difficult thing for me to do is to be vulnerable. And I know that's difficult for a lot of people, especially as men, we want to have it all figured out at all times. You need an answer. Look to me. I got it. And that's just not where most of us are, at least not at all times, all aspects of our lives. And so balancing that vulnerability with confidence that I am in the right place and that I am fulfilling my soul mission has been a really fun dance and it's continuing even today. That's cool. Thank you. What are some of the modalities that you found that are helpful for the 80% routine that you were talking about to integrate all of this into your daily routine? Brother, just starting the day with some mindfulness by meditating is super important. And in that meditation, I would bookend, say some Vipassana or silent mindfulness meditation with a gratitude practice, as well as a self-love practice. In particular, there might be parts of ourselves that we don't love or we seek to change, but you know, rather than banishing those parts or hating those parts, we have to learn to love those parts. And so that doesn't just intrinsically happen like snapping the fingers. It takes energy and effort to really start to accept all parts of ourselves. So beginning the day with some meditation, a gratitude practice, three things that you're grateful for in your life, and then some type of self-love meditation can be game-changing. And if you're able to do those things, those three things, after a good night's rest, when you ate well the day before, and you don't look at your phone for the first, let's say, hour of your day, you're cooking with gas. And in addition to the mindful mindfulness in the morning, the meditation, super impactful to have some type of physical movement, breath work, even just moderate to get your day started out right. Again, some type of digital moratorium, the first hour or the first two hours of the day or the last hour or two hours of the night, really being able to put your phone aside and get off and away from screens can be so impactful for flow as well as just, and more, even more importantly, just for mental health period. Community and super impactful, the practice, finding other people that feel the same way that you do. I joined last year, the fit for service community, Aubrey Marcus's uh, community. I encourage anyone that feels that they're looking for community to go to Aubrey Marcus's website, look at the fit for service community. It's been fantastic for me. And then, you know, even try to find just others in your friends group that, that you can form a mastermind with or a men's group or a women's embodiment group. And those are super important, you know, and then it's just the standards, you know, like the, the, the diet, exercise, sleep, and journaling has been extraordinarily impactful for, for me and many of my clients. 
will swear by trying to write three pages in the morning of just creative free writing. Just really not trying to censor or edit yourself, just giving the judge, the critic a break and just writing whatever comes to mind onto the page. Be surprised how helpful that can be for working through situations and complicated or difficult emotions. Yoga always, which, you know, is to say breath work. That's a good start. That's great. Those are all super helpful ideas and and all so, so simple. And so thank you for sharing those practices. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And now one of the concepts that you were talking about last time we chatted was the idea of masculine and feminine energies and that you've been working to help men understand this polarity. And so I was just hoping you could expand on that concept. Yeah, that's a fun one. Well, you know, the, the world is made with contrasting energy. There's night and day, up and down, big and small, light and dark, masculine, feminine. These polarities, object, subject, I could go on and on. We look at these polarities as two sides of the same coin, whether they're even sides is, you know, maybe just, just open to interpretation. It's just the same energy, but different poles of that energy of that expression. And so for many men, we have, I believe, a crisis in our culture of no rights of initiation for men. If you look at traditional societies, there's always a point where boys become men and they are guided by the men of the community into manhood from boyhood. And it's the same for women, for girls to women. And so these tr- more traditional cultures historically you know, have done the job of helping men understand their role in society, their role within the family, and it goes the same for women. And that's lost. And so we're seeking our guidance from ill-gotten sources of, of just TV, media, culture. And many men are finding that using the, what I would call toxic masculinity that's taught, they're not able to relate to women in a way that's productive and leads to fulfillment for both sexes. And so helping men look deeper into masculine, feminine energies and understanding the masculine's need for control and order and the feminine energy. And this is not just restricted. These energies are not restricted to just men or women as a matter of women only feel feminine energy and men only feel masculine energy. Women feel both masculine and feminine energies moving through them at all times, just like men feel masculine and feminine energies moving through them at all times. These are you know, the map is not the territory, but these energies are really important to understand to get a better grip of how to relate with people around you, with energy around you, and to understand the, um, it's just a, it's a framework for looking at the world that can be quite illuminating and lead to better relations with yourself, as well as with those around you. And I found it to be extremely helpful. 
to view the world through this lens of polarity. And it's not just masculine and feminine energy. It's understanding that just as the tide goes out, the tide must come in just as we understand this intuitively. If you think about all the folk sayings, you know, it's darkest just before the dawn, but there is no dawn unless there's darkness. So again, it's, it's, it's all part of the same cosmic goop and just understanding that within a framework that, Hey, this is all part of it. You start to wish a little less for no darkness and you start to appreciate the darkness when it's there and you meet it with greater appreciation and you understand that it is what it is. It's what creates the contrast with the light. And then you have a little bit more gratitude for the light and so on and so forth. What do you think are some of the ways that society ingrains in men these ideas of toxic masculinity? Well, it's so pervasive as to be in many respects unnoticeable until you see the contrast in conscious men. I think about the culture of make more money, have more stuff, get more attention from women. That's the way to be a big man. Strong man is more money, more status, more stuff, more women. It's just so pervasive, right? I mean, did you even know growing up that it was anything else but that? I mean, it's pushed in all of our media, all our TV shows, everything that this is the way to be a man. And how about this? You know, real men don't cry. You know, and we're seeing, you know, some of the changes of this, you know, I mean, I think we're seeing some of the society today, there seems to be more awareness of, and, you know, we talk about toxic masculinity or things of that nature. There's a greater awareness, but, you know, for many men, then there's the rubber band snaps back in the other direction. It's like, well, okay, I'm not going to be a a wuss. I'm not just going to go crying everywhere, you know? And so even though we're we're talking about it, or there seems to be an awareness that, hey, maybe some of this isn't, some of this stuff I've been sold is not true. You know, there's still a reluctance to it. And so that's what I see. And I think that's what other men see as well. You know, it's, you have to really deeply feel it when you get to a point in your life where you have the nice car, you have the, the house, the woman, whatever it is, the stock portfolio that you've been chasing your entire life. And then you look up and you're like, fuck, this this doesn't make me happy. Why am I not happy? What's wrong with me? And it has to come from within, you know, the sense of self-worth and love. You can't just cover it up, paper it over with more money um, or or fancy cars. And so then it becomes, um, you know, well, well, what is, what does it take? You know, what am I, okay. If it's not going to be the money, it's not going to be all the outside external rewards, how do I get there? And that road's a little bit different for each person, the road to inner peace. But ultimately it's, I think it's a, it's not a destination at all. It's a process. And so engaging in that process of living, living as Aristotle said, you know, the examined life, that is, that is it. That's it you know, is, is to be in that process, to be engaged in the search. And that's hard for some folks to hear because they think that they're going to check consciousness or happiness or fulfillment 
off the list, like they might have checked 3,000 square foot home off their list. And it doesn't work that way, but you, you get points for showing up. And it really is about how you play the game, not whether you win or lose. And I think that sitting with men and, and women as well, you know, in this, in this space of just relating to this energy is really powerful because there's something very deep and primordial about connecting with our, our power through our masculine or feminine essence and embracing in many respects, the contrast between masculine and feminine. And, you know, we're told in society in so many ways, like, oh, little boys and little girls, there's no difference. You're the same. Everything's the same. But what I see in my work is that innately, we all know there's a difference and that we can all find a lot of therapeutic value in connecting with those energies that we relate to. And it could be a man connecting to his feminine essence and really being able to let go of his need to control and have order in everything and embracing uncertainty, uncertainty being a very feminine energetic characteristic. And so those exercises and that process itself then leads to consciousness expansion and the ability to hold more polarity, more contrast and more response and less reaction and as a result you know this idea that one is potentiating their most authentic best self as opposed to merely waiting to die wow that's beautiful i would be interested to know if as you've been doing this coaching work and helping men with understanding their own toxic masculinity. Have you been able to catch yourself and maybe behavior patterns that were pre-existing in your current relationship? Well, for me, it was always a need to, there, there's always been a need to, have nice things to prove myself to feel like I had it all figured out, you know, to cover up my wounds, to suppress my feelings. And in this work, I've been able to release many of the restrictions on being able to just feel feelings that I had for many, many years not felt. And in particular, when it comes to money and needing to have money to be somebody, being able to let go of that as part of my identity. It's a process, right? I mean, it's not ever done. I mean, I'm still doing the work right now, but um, that's been big. And then in, in my relationship in particular, you know, I've, I just absolutely thought that you know, I mean, it's probably because I was a tall, skinny kid that just could not get any attention from women in high school, that when I did start to get attention from women, it became a proxy and a stand-in for 
my own self-worth. It's like, I, I was somebody because I was getting attention from women. And so that's a very bad place to be in, you know, when you're putting your own self-worth in a woman's hands outside of you or, and, you know, needing attention in order to feel like you're worth something. So for me, it's, it's been, you know, as I've deepened my relationship with my partner, Nicole, understanding the, or really feeling into and the importance of my desire for a sacred union with her, as opposed to believing that attention from any number of women would would stand in and be the same. Wanting to have a different experience with the same woman as opposed to the same experience with many different women was a big shift for me. And I, I think a sign of maturity. I've gotten older. And so that's probably where it feels most alive for me in my journey, you know, is just in how I re- related to, I mean, I've been, you know, I've considered myself polyamorous in the past, you know, I've sworn against monogamy and yet here I am in a monogamous relationship with a woman that I very much want to have a, a sacred union with. And so it's been a big shift and it all, I think comes back down to an appreciation that the approval I seek is within me. It's not going to come from without from any woman or any man. And, you know, that's a a felt sense that is very powerful when you feel it. It's also very fleeting. And so it becomes very important to do the work, to practice the practices, to keep that, that feeling fresh and top of mind. And as I do, you know, I, I notice and I'm aware that I look at my life and I think, wow, it's, it's improving. My experiences with my partner are deeper and more meaningful and impactful and they matter more because of the work that we put in to have them. The conversations I'm having with individuals that, you know, used to sit across from me and we talk about cap tables and now we're talking about how to elevate their consciousness and ease their suffering. And when it seems to go well, it's more gratifying than it ever was before. So this is just my journey, right? We all have our own, you know? And so there's just, I guess I'd have to just stop my rambling and just summarize and say that that which you seek is within. And for all the talk of the power and the magnitude of how impactful psychedelics can be, the medicine is already within you. Psychedelics might just shine a light on that medicine, but let's be clear, it was within you before we started the ceremony. And that's what psychedelic means exactly. Psyche, mind, delic, manifesting. Oh, it really is. And I love the definition or maybe not definition, but I love the description of psychedelics as entheogens, compounds that bring us closer to God. But to me, they don't take you up to the sky. They take you within, right? Mm-hmm. As you said, psychedelics. So, you know, God is within all of us. And I think that's where we, we misquoted Jesus, you know, as a kingdom of heaven, it's not coming, it's here within us. And we find it when we drop the past we stop worrying about the future and we're in the eternal present. Eternal life is the eternal now. The kingdom of God is within us when 
we are radiating consciousness in the eternal now. I think that's so well said. And Jai, I think that's a great place to pick to wrap up. This has been so much fun and and really appreciate you uh, joining the podcast today. It's been a pleasure, Jordan. I'm so thrilled to have been a guest and yeah, I'm excited to hear it when it comes out. And it was fun to talk about this stuff in a way that I I haven't really, I've done a a handful of podcasts in the last few months, but none have been as far reaching or as interesting. So I really, or at least it's been interesting to me, I guess we'll leave it to your viewers to decide if uh, it's (laughs) interesting to them, but (laughs) I've really enjoyed the conversation, brother. Thank you. Awesome. Well, we'd love to do it again sometime as well. Awesome. Awesome, man. Thanks everyone for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. I love the honesty with which John was able to confront his past relationships with women and the work he's doing to break toxic behavior patterns. I also resonated with his discussion of the feminine and masculine energies intrinsic to each of us. Yet the ideas of what society has deemed to be manly are so pervasive and toxic that even in 2022, It's nearly impossible to find examples in pop culture of successful, heterosexual men who demonstrate anything but these qualities. Qualities of wealth, of promiscuity with women, of material success, and of the physical strength to dominate others. So for men who either don't know how to achieve these qualities or whose authentic selves don't resonate with those characteristics, it's understandable that they can feel inadequate. But of course they don't discuss those feelings of shortcoming in public or private conversation, that would be the least manly thing of all. It's not just the fault of the media and entertainment industries for this portrayal of men that has led to our culture of toxic masculinity. It's also a profound failing on the part of our education system, a system that spends effectively no time on the development of emotional intelligence and interpersonal relationships. What little sexual education students have is all focused on the plumbing, Parents and teachers also have limited resources for support and can tend to skirt important but difficult questions about relationships and sex. So where are students left to learn about these things? Unsurprisingly, many of them turn to pornography. How insane can our society be when kids are afraid to talk to their parents about sex, yet 25% of search engine requests are related to porn and 11 is the average age when youths are first exposed to adult material. No wonder we live in a society that continues to perpetuate images of masculinity as promiscuous and dominating. As I relate all of this to my personal story, it's only been over the last several years that I've recognized these toxic aspects of society and started to unpack how they've affected my own psyche and romantic relationships. When I was in elementary school, I skipped a grade, going from second to third. This move benefited my confidence in the world of academic and subsequently professional success. But on the other side of the coin, I started to associate myself with labels as the younger, shorter, nerdier kid in class, which unsurprisingly did not help my confidence with women. Then when I went to college, I joined a fraternity that was on the lower end of the popularity spectrum. As silly as it may sound today, the deeply hierarchical structure of the Greek system 
further entrenched these feelings of inadequacy and toxic behavior patterns of supplication. These experiences in my adolescence contributed to what psychologists refer to as excessive reassurance seeking in subsequent romantic and friend relationships. As Mitch Prinstein explains, the constant questioning and doubting of a reassurance seeker can make an individual from whom reassurance is sought feel distrusted, stressed, and ineffective, wondering, why can't I help this person that I care so much about? Why doesn't he or she believe me? Eventually, the pressure to continually reassure causes them to withdraw. They become slow to return messages, less convincing in their declaration of love. They become less comforting, and of course, this is exactly what the reassurance seeker is hypervigilant to detect. As I got older, I recognized that these labels I'd associated with myself did not define me. But again, useful resources on developing healthy relationships were limited, and so I turned to the best thing I could find, men's dating advice like Neil Strauss' book, The Game. I overcorrected from where I'd been earlier in life, and as I embraced the fuckboy lifestyle, I found that having the same experience with multiple women was still not bringing me fulfillment. That sex with someone I'd just met was nowhere near as pleasurable as with someone I was deeply in love with. That I was often paying forward the times that I'd been hurt in the past by being irresponsible and immature with the feelings of women in the present. And that I was seeking self-love from the external validation of others, which, as John highlighted, is always a clear recipe for disaster. So over the past year, as I've embraced spirituality and explored the true nature of reality, I've taken a step back from dating. As I've reconsidered everything I thought I knew about myself and the universe, I thought it prudent to first figure out who I am and what future I want to manifest before attempting to share that experience with a life partner. In our society, which places extreme pressure on settling down and starting a family, many of those close to me have found this decision to be bizarre. But in a society that is so deeply toxic with regards to ideas of masculinity, femininity, and romantic relationships, it makes complete sense that finding your personal truth can take time. I'm still figuring out what I want and whether monogamy and marriage are the right decisions for me. But as I've stopped trying to force romantic relationships and trusted the universe to show me the signs along the way, I can tell that I'm getting closer to finding those answers. For society as a whole, we still have a long way to go. However, we have started to lay the foundations for what healthy, interdependent relationships can look like. We're working towards a culture that embraces both our masculine and feminine energies. Progress is always a process of two steps forward, one step back. But we're walking.